0: Uh, The topic today, you know, there are some subjects of such large scale and such large scope that we really can't ever fully hope to understand them and grasp them. Uh, Academically, we can. We can come to terms with them, sort of uh, uh, intellectually and academically, but to truly grasp it in your bones, to grasp it in your blood... Uh, Is truly in the realm of the impossible. Uh, For instance, uh, the sermonette was about cosmology. When it comes to the universe, you know, you can study star charts and you can take a look at how the galaxies are dispersed in the universe and you can take a look at their coordinates and our measurements and charts of star brightness and look at number of light years this and percentages of hydrogen that. You can look at all these things. You can come to understand the uh, Many of the laws of physics that govern the objects in our universe. And you can come to a certain intellectual grasp of the cosmos. But we all know that's different when if you've had the blessing of being out on a beautiful, dark, starry night with no lights from a nearby town to interfere uh, when the moon isn't present shining in the sky and you look up at the stars and there are so many truly beyond count. And you see the Milky Way and you recognize as you're trying to soak it in that you don't get the half of it. You don't get the tenth of it. You don't get the hundredth of it because it is so vast and something so great and so far beyond you. And yet the attempt to try does ennoble us. The attempt to try to grasp the whole of it, even though we know we're doomed to fail from the beginning, does move us forward in some way. It's like the difference between having, say, a map of the Pacific Ocean and then actually standing on the shore and experiencing it. You know, you can look at the map and you can understand the 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 coastlines and where the inlets are and what the major ports are. You can study about the tides. You can study about the flow of the different underwater streams and such. You can take a look at the different life forms that live in the Pacific Ocean. But it's not like standing on the shore. And seeing the waves hit the rocks and hearing the roar of that power and that strength and feeling the spray on your face and then recognizing, I don't know the whole of it. It's so much bigger than I am. It's so much vaster than I am. I can intellectually recognize it, but I can't truly know it in my bones fully. I can't truly know it in my blood fully. Well, there's many aspects concerning our Creator, the eternal God, that are just like that. Because He is the eternal. He is the great one. He is the ever-living one. He's the one that we strain and struggle to fully grasp. And while we can intellectually recognize some things, we recognize that in this life, on this side of the veil, there are some things we will never know fully until we're on the other side. Until we're actually experiencing the very same life that he experiences now. And it's my desire to talk about one of those topics today. If you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 3, I'd like to read a passage that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus and that sort of sets the, the stage for what I want to try to do. Ephesians chapter 3. And there are many things like this. There's many different topics of such scope and scale. I'm going to narrow my focus to one in particular. In Ephesians chapter 3, we'll start in verse 14. Ephesians 3, we'll start in verse 14. We read here Paul saying, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That last verse encapsulates sort of the, uh, the paradox of what we want to talk about today. He says there that if you want to be filled with the fullness of God, then it is vital that you seek to know the love of Christ, this love that God has towards us, which was exemplified in him. And yet it says to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. There will be this kind of eternal seeking and growing, and yet it is so full, it is so rich that on this side of the veil, we will never comprehend it fully. We will never have a fullness of a comprehension. There will always be room to grow, always be room to understand it more fully and more completely. That's really at the heart of the purpose of my sermon today. It's sort of a twofold purpose. First, I want to help all of us understand more fully God's love for us. It seems like a fluffy kind of statement. I want you to know God loves you. You know, He loves you. Uh, you know, it seems really fluffy. But part of that's because we've been poisoned by a world that has turned it into something fluffy. That has turned it into just kind of a Hallmark card kind of God. When He is so much greater and His love is so much richer and more full than that. Without it, we don't comprehend how much he longs to bring his kingdom to this world. Without it, we don't comprehend how much he looks forward to completing what he is doing in each and every one of us. And so I want to try to contribute towards that. To help us not just understand it intellectually, but to actually stand on the shore uh, a bit uh, from what he tells us about that. And then in the time that's remaining afterwards... I want us to comprehend this isn't simply some sort of academic exercise. But the more we do come to grow in understanding of God's love, the more it impacts our relationship to Him, our relationship to Jesus Christ, and our relationship to each other. And there's an irony in it. It's sort of like the universe. You know, you can take someone who hasn't really thought about it much or hasn't been educated much, then kind of go out maybe and see the stars and say, man, there's a lot of those and I see them all, you know, there they are, I've got it, you know, I understand the whole shebang. There's space and it's black and there's points of light and they're white and, you know, i got it. Uh, and yet, the more educated you get about it, the more you look into it, actually the more you come to understand about the cosmos, the irony is the more you realize I will never in this life grasp the whole of it. So to some wonderful sort of extent, the purpose of the sermon is kind of self-defeating. The more we come to understand the love God has for us and what that means and what it implies, the more we'll also comprehend that in this life we truly have no idea of the limits for it and won't until we're on the other side with Him in the life that He has now. So that's the purpose of the sermon today. And the title of the sermon is you have no idea. You have no idea. Actually, my sister i discovered I have a a sister in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, uh, who was born before I was a whole adoption story there. Uh, She texted me today and said, so are you giving a sermon today? Which coincidentally I was. And she said, so what is it? And I said, well, it's, it's called you have no idea. I said, I'd tell you what it's about, but I have no idea anyway. So I messed with her a little bit. Um, Before we get into the subject in that direction, I actually feel it's profitable for us to spend some time talking about some misconception. I want to take a look at some false ideas about God's love first. We don't always say them. We don't always describe them in these words. But unless you're remarkably different from I am, and many of you are, you're better looking and taller and all the rest. Unless we're remarkably different as human beings, they do worm their way into our thoughts. I know they've wormed their way into mine uh, from time to time. In terms of my feelings and my thoughts and my reactions to what God is doing. So let me dispel some false ideas first. Uh, the first one. God's love for you isn't merely... The corporate or collective kind of you when we say that God loves you. He actually just loves you. You know, sometimes we say, we know, we know, you know, God has a plan for you. Uh, God is is working to save you. And we can think of that as the corporate sense. Uh, And actually, we're kind of avoiding some of the mistakes that some people in the world tend to have when they think that thought. They don't think in the corporate sense that you can not just be alone in your home. And that's all that's really necessary. Uh, You can avoid meeting with other Christians. You can avoid getting together uh, and actually still develop a relationship towards God. That's not the way he designed it. The corporate sense of you and me as the church is very important. But I remember someone saying something way back uh, in the Worldwide Church of God. It was a minister had gotten up and it was kind of early because it really made me think. And the point he made was that you know, if you were the only person who sinned and Christ had to die for just you, he would do that. That he would do that. That when we say, and what Scripture tells us, that God loves you, it really does just mean you. You sitting in your chair. You wearing your clothes. The person that looks out at the mirror at you. That he actually does love you. There's a verse that, that makes me think, and I appreciate its translation in the New King James. Turn to Psalm 33. Psalm 33. And we'll start in Psalm 33 in verse 13. We read here in Psalm 33 and verse 13, The eternal looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. We tend not to have a problem with that. We think of God looking on the world from heaven and seeing our congregation and seeing the church, seeing what's going on in the Middle East. And it's the next verse that made me think. He says in verse 14, sorry, verse 15, He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. Now, other translations translate it differently, and they're not off. That's part of the thing about Hebrew and Greek is it can be so rich. It's often hard to really encapsulate what it's saying uh, in a few English words. It's not a a one-to-one kind of function for the calculus geeks out there. Um, He fashions their hearts individually. Other translations get across the sense is that he fashions... All of them not missing a one that he's involved with the fashioning of each of us. The fact is, God loves you, your individual development, your day matters to him. And so sometimes we can think of that only in the corporate sense. He needs us to know he thinks of it individually. As well. Another misconception we want to make sure we address at the beginning God doesn't love you out of mere obligation or because He must. God doesn't love you, He doesn't love me, out of mere obligation or because He must. You know, it's kind of important. There's something I often talk about in, in uh, premarital counseling. and It's a good thing. I'm not trying to knock it. It's just that when it comes to subjects like this, like love, that are so rich and full that sometimes you can cover one facet of the gem and and then accidentally deemphasize other facets. And, you know, different people talk that about Paul. They think Paul was all about faith. James was all about uh, works. Instead of realizing they were talking about multiple facets of the same thing. And one of the comments that I'll make in, in counseling for relationship counseling or as we get into premarital counseling is that love is a choice. You know, you choose to love because believe me, when you're married, there's days you don't feel like loving. That's just the way it is. You know, even in the best of marriages, which, by the way, that's mine. You know, y'all are y'all are no more than second because we're we're number one. But. Even in the best of, I don't, Mr Ames already looking at me. Kind of funny. Uh, even in the best of marriages, there are those days when you have to remind yourself, okay, I'm choosing to love right now. You know, this is the 17th demand this week. He's made for a sandwich. You know, and he, he can't get up and make his own sandwich. But I'm going to choose. I'm going to choose to love. And that's a true statement. It's not love. Isn't just at the whim of our feelings at the time. And yet at the same time, it certainly is more than that as well, right? It's so much more. I know when my wife and I counseled for our marriage with the minister, we wanted to get married, so we counseled the minister. And one of the first things he asked us was, so why do you guys want to get married? And I, 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 I give you my word, it was not a prepared speech. I really didn't go in thinking, well, I gotta convince this guy, you know, that we're, I was just going through, well, you know, I, you know, I, we've known each other for a while, we're best friends, I really feel like, you know, she, 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 she makes me a better Christian, you know, she's a good example, and back and forth, and he's listening patiently, he's like, oh, okay, well, he goes on, and then finally, when, you know, me, you know, whenever he gets an opportunity to say something, <laughs> he says, what, and you love each other, right? It's like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, we do. Yeah, we do. We, we, we do. We love each other. You know, there was definitely that. And sometimes with God, we can think, well, you know, okay, yes, God loves me. I understand that. He loves me because he has to. And if he had opportunity, there's probably times he'd choose not to. He'd say, you know what? I'm so frustrated with this person. I just I'll keep loving them, but only because I have to. Only because I said in my word that I would. And that's not the way it is. I think we'll see that as we go through other parts of the sermon. But it's not the case. He doesn't love us out of mere obligation or requirement. And then finally, uh, the last misperception that I'd like to address is that He doesn't love us just when we're good. Now, this can be twisted and has been twisted by some in the past to say stupid things, things that I am grateful. I'm here talking in front of a congregation of the church of God where we understand that those things are false. But let me not take it for granted. Let me make sure that I do explain. Um, And we'll talk in more detail a bit later. But just because we love someone doesn't mean it doesn't make a difference to us whether they're obedient or not when it comes to children for instance love is an excuse uh, to just disobey and do whatever we want actually uh, turn to proverbs uh, proverbs chapter 3 since we should be fairly close from where we are but i'll mention that in hebrews chapter 12 paul, paul, the apostle paul quotes this passage he paraphrases it to a certain extent but he Quotes from Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 12. Proverbs 3 and verse 12. It says here, For whom the eternal loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Sometimes we can think that God is trying to correct us or work in our life and allow difficult things to somehow make us in a condition where he can love us. And that's not actually what this passage says. It says he corrects the sons he loves. Even the correction itself is born out of that love. He doesn't love us just because or when we're good. It's an unconditional Love. It's an unconditional love. And we have a sermon in our collection uh, from Mr. Ames, number 510, Unconditional Love, uh, given some time back. I wrote, it, I wrote it down, 2008, Unconditional Love. And I'm going to sit down and we're going to play that sermon right now. Uh, no, actually, I would like to read from Dr. Jeffrey Fall's booklet on successful parenting Uh, There's a couple of passages in particular. One of the things that he says in that booklet is that some may not believe in any corporal punishment whatsoever, speaking of parents, thinking that they have their children's well-being at heart, but they fail to understand human nature and what is truly best for children. Unconditional love and learned obedience with applied correction. Both of those things. Both of them are necessary. One without the other when it comes to being a parent and we're out of balance. And if we don't grow in a grasp of God's unconditional love, we risk simply seeing him as one of these kind of authoritarian parents who's doing nothing but correcting us and isn't invested himself. In fact, he also says elsewhere in the booklet, in previous decades, many parents relied primarily on restrictive authority and on punishments for disobedience. Little encouragement or unconditional love was given. And parents with this approach became unloving authoritarians. Both elements are necessary. And we have to recognize God loves us unconditionally, not just when we're good. Uh, There's a country song that's not exactly right, but I remember the first time I heard it and listened to it, it was after I was baptized, I was driving around in my Beautiful four-door metallic blue Chevy 1972 Nova. I miss that car very much, and I remember riding in town. And uh, some of you know the song, you know. Let me tell you a secret about a father's love. I won't sing it for you because y'all asked me to stop. If I did start singing it for you, um, but in that, I think it's George Strait. I think it was George Strait. And uh, one of the things he says is uh, uh, that a father's love isn't just every now and then. It's it's a love without end. There's not boundaries to it. Uh, and it, I remember in my car thinking about that and thinking about the fact that I'd been forgiven uh, at baptism. And I remember as I was rearing my own sons when they would misbehave, which is hard for some of you to believe, but believe me, it happens. It could be happening right now, actually, You know, as far as I know, but it does happen. That I I remember as I would interact with them and it would come down to some kind of discipline or punishment, whether it was a grounding or a, you know, leaving, you know, someone didn't get to go to something they wanted to do. There was a couple of things I wanted them to know, both of them examples of of love. One is I wanted them to understand that they were being punished, not because it was a a malicious act that we just, I'm angry and so I want to punish you. But that I love them too much not to discipline them. I love them too much not to allow them to continue to grow up um, and not feel that what they've done is something that's going to harm them in the future. And as children, that's hard to understand when we're young. In fact, some of you children right now are probably thinking, oh, I've heard that speech a hundred times. Please, you know, you're giving, me, you're giving me flashbacks. I never said this is going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt me because it wasn't going to. Uh, but I did say that. I did point out that, you know, not every time, but I did want to make sure they understood that what we were doing was because I loved them too much. And I could say that from experience as a high school teacher because I knew students uh, who would be failing or who would be misbehaving, uh, who would be out of line, who would be rebellious. And I knew their parents were not ignorant of it, uh, ignorant of it in a lot of those cases and knew parents who were doing absolutely nothing. And they, the kids seem like they're having a ball and you realize all they're doing is building in their life everything they're going to regret in the future. And I could see that from the perspective as an adult and the perspective they did not have. And yet you had the other students that, uh, you know, mom and dad were getting down on them, you know, because they had a C, you know, and was making them come in for, for extra help and for tutoring. And I try to highlight to them. I said, don't hold that against your mom and dad. I don't know all the details of your family life, but be grateful you have a mom or dad who cares enough to make you do this. Because I see too many tragic cases where that's not the case. So I needed them to know that. But also afterwards. And I saw a biblical model for this. And Mr. Aguin would highlight this, I know, in Dallas in his sermons. That even if you look at God's correction, when he talks about correction to Israel, he talks about the punishments to come. He would also talk about a restoration. He would talk about it wasn't just to punish you, because he longed to have that relationship. And he wanted Israel to know that he loved them and... It was important to me in, in punishment, especially when they were feeling bad. You know, whenever the, the chastising has been successful, because there is a, there's a change in spirit. There is a desire in a child for the relationship to be good again. And uh, sometimes they can feel guilty and they can feel down. And I never wanted them in that moment To feel somehow that they were too low for me to love, or they were so, they were somehow had been so bad that my love was on shaky ground for them. And I had this sort of ritual, I had this question I would ask, and I would ask, does daddy love you only when you're good, or does he love you all the time? And then they would respond, All the time, you know, please don't punish me anymore. No, they they generally wouldn't do that. If they did, I knew that I'd messed up. But they would say, he loves me all the time. It was vital to me that they understood that. And it's vital that we don't have that misunderstanding about God's unconditional love. He doesn't just love us when we're good. He loves us all the time. So those things said, those misunderstandings out of the way, let's uh, dive into the rest. You know, we're told by Jesus Christ in the Gospels, he says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. That's in John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If you would turn to First John chapter 4 with that in mind. Because if we aspire to eternal life, and I do believe everybody here does, I know that I do, then Jesus Christ makes it plain here that involves knowing God. Now that could be a whole other sermon because there's multiple aspects to what do we do? How do we come to do that? I want to focus on one in particular, something we have to come to terms with. If knowing God is a part of coming into eternal life, if understanding God, in some way, is a part of coming into eternal life. And that is going to include grappling with this fact in 1 John and chapter 4. 1 John and chapter 4 and verse 8. The Apostle John says very simply, He who does not love... Does not know God. For God is love. God is love. Now we do have to understand love correctly to understand that. But at the same time, take the time to soak in what kind of statement that is. To be able to say those three words, God is love. That's not normal. For something to be so much a part of our character and being and who we are that that can be said of us, you know. For instance, I I really like math. You know, we've a lot of us know that we talk. Some of some you have a math ID and you'll send it to me on Facebook or something. And you know, I like math, but I don't think anybody would actually say, "Oh, you know, he loves math so much." Wally Smith is math, <laughs> right? At least I hope not. You know, that would be really, really unusual. Uh, we were at volleyball practice, uh, the other night, uh, a couple nights ago, I was there, and, or not a couple nights, but a few practices, and I was watching, uh, a member of our congregation, Mr., Mr. Derek Lee, and I thought, well, he's, he's pretty good at playing volleyball. Put the pressure on him now, everybody's gonna be watching, watching you, Mr. Lee, uh, play volleyball. But anyway, I just, I just thought, wow, he was, you know, he was really pretty good, watching him warm up, but I wouldn't actually say Derek Lee is volleyball, right? I mean, I wouldn't say that. I hope it didn't hurt your feelings uh, out there. Mister. Well, I thought I was volleyball. Uh, you know, <laughs> that doesn't consume him so much that it defines in some way who he is, right? And yet the Bible tells us God is love. It is something so central, so fundamental, so integral to who he is and what he is and what he does and what he chooses and how he thinks that the Bible can say God is love. And it's not an exaggeration. It's something fundamentally true. How can we even comprehend what it is for a being to have that kind of outward concern for others, outward focus on others, to understand that it can be such a defining characteristic that you can make such a statement? Honestly, it seems a little hopeless. Again, hearkening back to the verse that we started with, how do we even begin to know something that passes knowledge? Remember what Paul said in Ephesians? To come to know that love, the love of Christ, which actually passes knowledge. It's like what you see so often in some of my favorite verses in the Old Testament where David says things like, you know, it's too high. I can't attain it. How do we begin that process then? Well, we have a lot of help. Uh, One, we do have God's spirit, right? We have access to that spirit. It is able to help us grow in directions and magnitudes. We would not be able to grow in otherwise. Uh, We share that with God the Father and Jesus Christ themselves. And so we are able to access that. We have God's law of love, uh, which does put God's mind and character and love in everyday sort of terms. And allows us to understand what does that look like with our hands and with our feet and with our mouth. God's law serves that purpose. In fact, we have that as an aid. We have that as a help. And God also helps us with the most perfect example he could ever provide. We're already in 1 John. Let's read just a little bit further from where we left off first John chapter 4 again and verse 9 we read in this the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him we're told here the love of God was manifested toward us in his sending his son continue in verse 10 In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God sent his son to act in the world, to teach in the world. And part of that should be to help us understand God's love. It should be a manifestation of that. He's the one that when we're baptized, we want to live in us. To help us to comprehend it more fully. There's a reason God often points us to the love of Christ as an example. One of my favorite passages on this matter is in Romans chapter 8. If you turn to Romans chapter 8. I was going to say, in my favorite passage, we've got to be careful. Sometimes we ministers do that and by the time the sermon's over, we've listed eight or nine favorite passages. Uh, But this really is, in terms of this particular topic, one of my favorites. Romans chapter 8. And we'll just start in verse 31. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son... But delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? How is that supposed to manifest in some way God's love to us? I mean, you know, giving his son like that. Well, let me say that I probably didn't understand that as well as I do uh, after becoming a father. You know, I remember before I was a father, you know, I like to think I was kind of a nice guy. I like to think that I was, you know, pretty loving. And, you know, at the height of things I consider, well, you know, self-sacrifice. And yet, when you have children and see them suffer, it's really something very different. I remember the first time uh, one of them had an ear infection. And uh, we thought it was an ear infection. was not sure at the time. But, oh, he was just crying and in pain. He was so little. And it's not like words consoled. You know, you get to be that point in pain where the words just aren't rational, right? They're not registering. And I remember, you know, praying for him in that regard. And And I'm not saying this is... Because I'm something special. If you've been a parent, you've been in that place. Frankly, if you've been in the church, you've probably been in that place for others, regardless of whether you're a parent or not. And over time, certainly will be. But I've prayed for that, that that if he would put that on me instead, you know, just to see my son in such agony and say, you know, just put that on me, you know, just whatever. Just please don't let him continue in this. He doesn't understand. You know, he's just a child And just pleading with God. And I remember learning from that. That the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It wasn't just Jesus Christ's actions and choices. What a difficult day that must have been for his father as well. And what a price it was for them to pay together. And Paul points us to that price. To say he loved you enough for them to go through this. We continue in the passage. He says in verse 33, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And people do it every day. He says, It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Why does he list these things? Because there's times we feel we're in those places. We feel we're under the sword. We are in peril. We are in nakedness. We are in famine. And he's reminding us when you're in those times, it doesn't mean you're separated from that love. It is unconditional. It is still there. And then identifying with those because he himself had been through these things. He says in verse 36, as it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded, he says, That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He gives us that example. And intends us to learn from that. And when you read these kinds of superlatives poured onto it by the Apostle Paul, we do recognize this is not something we will ever truly fully understand in this life. And yet, every additional glance we can get of it, we find revolutionizes our understanding and moves us closer to Him and further along in everything He's trying to achieve in us. Now, please understand, I do feel the necessity to say this because the world twists such ideas of God's love into things that are perversions and things that are wrong. And I don't want anyone ever making that mistake because of anything I've said. You know, 1 John chapter 5 tells us this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. It's 1 John 5 and verse 3. God's love... Oh, someone remembered it. I heard that. Someone remembered it. Memory verse. Good job. (laughs) Good job. First John chapter five and verse three, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. God's love cannot ever be truly separated from his law and commandments. If God is love and it is God's law, then it's a law of love. It's actually simple. If you think about it from the perspective of a parent, our children may think sometimes we just make up rules arbitrarily. Uh, because we enjoy controlling the lives of others and manipulating them like evil puppets. <laughs> uh, you know, they may think that, and maybe sometimes we do and we need to stop. But regardless, there are so many things we tell them. Why? Because we love them. And just because we love them, when I love my kids, I say, hey, you need to take the garbage out. But since I love you, you don't really got to do it if you don't want to. You know, really, because I love you. And so you don't got to take the garbage out if you don't want to. But I'm going to tell you take the garbage out. But you can ignore that if you want doesn't make any sense at all. No, I take, take the garbage out. Take the garbage out. It's still a command. The fact that I love them doesn't change the fact that I've commanded them. And why? It's not because it's arbitrary. There's a lot of things we learn in our chores. We want people to participate in the life of the family, uh, to learn to be industrious. I also don't like taking the garbage out. You know, I do admit, at least on this level, there's a part of that as well. But then think of it also this way. Because we love our children... Doesn't their obedience mean more to us? I mean, I might hear a tale of a child here and there not really obeying their parents. When I was a high school teacher, I saw it in action. I got to enjoy uh, the disobedience of many children on a daily basis. And I might come home to my wife and talk about it, but it's different with my kids. I care more. I care more. Doesn't that make sense of God as well? Doesn't it make sense to say that if he loves us, it's not that our obedience means less to him. Someone who says that either hasn't read their Bible or has no idea what it's like to have children. Our obedience means all the more. And yet at the same time, the balance of that is to understand That He doesn't love us because we obey. It means something to Him. He wants us to obey. And there will be people going into the lake of fire. For their refusal to obey and submit to God. But there's a reason why it tells us in Ezekiel. That God doesn't get any pleasure from the death of the wicked. In Ezekiel 33. Because those people going into the lake of fire. He loves them too. He loves them too. You know, why do you love your children then? Why do we love our children? Why is it that when even we get to those places and sometimes in some families where a child has been so rebellious, you've had to send them away? Uh, They're they're having to live someplace else in their rebellion. Uh, I've known families like that. My wife and I even talked about the possibility uh, when we one day had children Some of them are still young and have a chance You know, maybe, you know, you'll do that It happens And why do those parents even after that Do they just write them off and say Well, you know, it's just Good thing I can make more Why is it they're still praying For those children Day after day Why is it they love them They love them because of who they are And because they're theirs You know You know Children, say so you're sitting at a playground, your kids are little, and they're swinging and sliding and doing whatever, and it's a crowded playground. Maybe it's the first spring day after a long winter, and it seems like everyone has decided to go to the park. I don't know if you've ever been there on one of those days. Like there's a line around the, the corner, like there's a Star Wars movie in town, and everybody wants to be in the park. And so you're sitting on a bench, and there's a mass of kids. It's not that you don't love all those kids in some way, Right? I mean, if a little kid next to you was walking by and fell on the ground and scraped his knee on a rock and was bleeding and calling out for his mom and it wasn't yours, you wouldn't go, "Ooh, boy, that looks rough. <laughs> Poor kid. It's not mine, though. I don't care. Uh, you know, no, maybe some of you would. We need to talk or counsel with <laughs> Mr. McNair or Mr. DeSimone. However, a lot of us would say, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, let's find your mommy. Right. Let's find your daddy. And you might take them around. It's not that you don't love them. But it is different when it's your kids. When you look at that mass of faces and you're sitting there on that bench and you're scanning the crowd. And it's not that the other faces aren't cute and it's not that they're not wonderful, but you're scanning them all looking for yours. Not because you know they're being good. They may not. You might finally find that boy and he's biting some other kid. You know, it happens, right? Uh, But you're scanning because they're them and they're yours and you love them. And in that sea of faces... You scan, and there's one. That one's mine. And there's the other one over on the swing. And there's that one. Looks like he's having a bad day. I'll keep an eye on that one. And there's the other one. Out of a sea of 500 faces, those mean something to you different than the others do. God loves us because we're his. God loves you because you're His and because you're you. Uh, Turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. I remember this passage teaching me a lot. Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29 and understand as we read this, Jeremiah is talking to God is using Jeremiah to talk to a rebellious Israel. You know, these verses will mean something uh, to Israel in the future when they are in captivity and they go through these and it's going to feel like they are at the pinnacle of God's hate and detestation. That God must truly abhor us. And they'll connect that with the things they've done. And in the midst of all of that, what does God say in Jeremiah 29 and verse 11? Jeremiah 29 verse 11, he says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the eternal. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you a future And a hope. He didn't say, I know the thoughts that I will think toward you. As soon as all this is passed, and you and I are good again, I know the thoughts I will think. Right now I'm just too disgusted. He says, I know the thoughts I think. This is not what I hope for you. I hope for something so much better and so much more beautiful. I hope for you a future and something glorious. No one has hopes for you or your future or mine that are greater than what God meditates on day by day. You know, it's interesting, actually, turn to Jeremiah 32, since we're fairly close and before we read a particular verse I want to remind you of something said in Deuteronomy it's a very famous uh, passage of Deuteronomy uh, the Shema and Deuteronomy you can note it look it up later check up on me you know don't, don't take my word for it right um, Deuteronomy it's in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5 where we read there in Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 you shall love the eternal your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength. And that seems so extreme, right? How greedy of God. How full of Himself that He expects everything from us. All of our soul. And all of our strength. Who does He think He is? You might ask. All of our soul and all our Of our heart, all of our strength. In Jeremiah chapter 32, we read in verse 41, God saying, yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good. Speaking of Israel, and I will assuredly plant them in this land. Verse 41, with all my heart and with all my soul. Yes, God wants everything of us. But part of that is because we already have everything of his. He is asking of us no more than he already had that we already have from him. All his heart and all his soul, his everything is already devoted to us. He's asking that we learn to do the same. You know, it's interesting. Uh, it's a math thing. Uh, we know from Second Peter, Peter says there that you know, a thousand days with God, sorry, a thousand years with God, it's like a day. Sorry, a thousand, okay, I'm going to get this straight. A day. I want to take time to turn there, so I'm just going to mess it up for the next 15 minutes. Uh, God says that, Peter says that for us, you know, we can go through a thousand years for God, it's like a day. But on the other hand, a day with us would be like a thousand years with God. There's this really kind of fascinating thought, you know, the scale sort of goes both ways. And it's a, it kind of helps us understand among a lot of different things. That God's relationship to time, you know, it's, 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 it's different. And if you take a look at that, if you think of it as one day with us being like a thousand years to God, uh, I call it the zoom in factor uh, for God. You can boil it down. Uh, you can boil it down, for instance, to say, what does that mean? Well, a thousand years would be like 365,000 days, right? Approximately. Let's not get into the fractions. Uh, so, so one day for us could be like 365,000 for God. Now with that said, I will confess that I do think each day I spend at least about a minute thinking of each of my children. Ah, great dad, I know. Uh, you know, hopefully it's more than that. But just give me that. Just give me that. And maybe as fathers, we need to ask ourselves if we do at least spend a good solid sixty seconds on each of our kids. Uh, but let me, give me that. That at least each day I at least spend a minute. Thinking about them, what they're going through, what they're, what's going on in their lives, talking with them, spending time with them, at least a minute. But if you use that scale, one day being like 365,000 days for God, then one minute for us would be like nine months for God. And some of you already want to check me and you're going to get your iPhone out and your calculator. All I ask you is don't do it right now. Spend time with the sermon. Do it later and if I'm wrong, let me know and I'll, I'll apologize. It'll be scandalous, I know. Um, but... If I spend at least a minute each day, think of that. Just, just meditate on that. Imagine thinking about your children for nine straight months. No sleep. No eating. No interruption. But having that kind of mind and love for them that you can devote that much to them. Because we ask ourselves sometimes, well, how can God spend so much time thinking about me? I mean, how can God spend so much time thinking about you? We need to be reminded He's God. He's God. And the minute I would spend thinking about my kids is nothing compared to the time that He has spent and the effort and energy He has spent thinking about you. There's an important truth in Luke chapter 12. Jesus Christ wanting to encourage us in Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12... We're reminded here of a passage we often read in Matthew, a truth we read there. In Matthew. Sorry, Luke 12 and verse 31, we're told, but seek the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I get frustrated with myself in seeking the kingdom of God. I know that I lose my focus. I know that I don't, I'm not always, I don't always have it as a priority or not. And I can start to focus, well, man, I bet God's really disappointed in me. And I have to remember that it's not just a matter that I want to be in the kingdom of God. It's what we read also in the very next verse in verse 32 where we're told, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is a truth of all of us here that none of us want God's kingdom for ourselves more than he wants it for you. It is a truth that no one is spending more effort in wanting and trying to be a part of the kingdom of God than God is spending on getting you there because he longs to have you there. There is no one that spends more time on this planet thinking about you than God spends thinking about you. There is no one who has more hopes and dreams for you than God has for you. There is no one who spends more effort, more energy thinking about you and your future than he spends. And there's no one who longs to have you in that kingdom more. To have you there with him for eternity where he can hold your face in his hands and look in your eyes And say, you are mine forever. Now, if you turn to Matthew chapter 7, in trying to grasp God's love for us, God gives us permission to consider elements of this creation. One of my favorite words we've ever published in the Tomorrow's World magazine is theomorphic. I mentioned that to... I was actually talking about it to Mr. Wakefield before I knew he was the one that wrote the article that used it. I was totally not kissing up to Mr. Wakefield. I had no idea. Uh, goes, oh, I, I wrote that one. Uh, you know, so he didn't pat himself on the head or anything. But this universe is a theomorphic universe. That is, God has shaped and created things in this world to teach us about Him. Marriage between husband and wife is a picture of Christ and the church. It's not that, That's not an analogy we made up. We're not trying to force some human analogy on God. It's the opposite of that. God crafted marriage wanting to teach us something about himself. It's not that we're forcing the analogy of the family on God, as some told us 20, 30 years ago, and we're lying and not reading their Bibles. It's that God crafted the family to teach us something about him. It's not, we're not anthropomorphizing God. He has made this a theomorphic universe. It is meant to teach us about him. And we learn things like that here in Matthew chapter 7, or at least see them used. In Matthew 7, Jesus Christ teaches us about our father using human fathers. He says in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 9, Are what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Now, let me highlight this real quickly. It doesn't mean God just wants to satisfy all your wishes. I mean, how many, how many, what man among you is you when your son says, I want to eat candy every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and while I'm asleep, I want you to feed it to me. Candy, candy, candy. What, what father is there that says, Oh, that's a good idea, son. I'm totally going to do that. Part of why he's saying this, part of the lesson we should take is whenever it doesn't seem like God is answering our prayers of what we want, one of the things we can keep in mind is this. It's not because he's a bad father. It's not because he's a bad father. Like he says again, verse 9 again. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? Who of us would do that? He says in verse 11 If you then being evil, it just means here carnal, pulled by the temptations of the flesh. He says that you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Part of building the radiant faith that Dr. Meredith wants this church to have is understanding this fundamental truth is that he loves us like a father loves us. And you know, uh, he, he gives us permission here to reflect on our fathers, which Sometimes isn't helpful Uh, to reflect on our own fatherhood if we're men and our fathers, which also sometimes isn't as helpful as it should be. I know I can reflect on my work as a father and my track record isn't perfect. I know it's gonna be a shock to my children and my wife, but but it's not. You know, in every role that we fill in this world, we do make our mistakes. I know I've made my share. There's times when I have simply given a command, not because it was the right thing, but because I was just grumpy uh, or because I was upset. I know I haven't always done the right thing. And we can review that track record and sometimes project those things onto God. And that's not what he's saying do. Really, when we review our track record, we do find those moments that we transcend a little bit. When we did get a picture of the kind of fatherly devotion he's talking about here. I do think of one time in my life. Uh, we were still in Missouri, and I i want to say it was a Friday night. I can't remember for sure. I know it was in the evening. It was late because I would stay up late. I would uh, That's why I think it was a Friday night because I felt like I was probably working on a sermon. And uh, everybody else is in bed. Uh, the way the hall was, you'd have to pass uh, the boy, the door of the two older boys before you got to, to our bedroom. Right. And then on the other side of that would have been the, the bedroom for the two younger ones. They they shared rooms. And they were all they were still fairly young. And I remember, oh, it's time to go to bed. I'm exhausted. You know, it's it's good, it's in the can, I'm ready for services tomorrow. I'm walking down the hall. And you know, you just look in, just check. Their lights are off, the whole light was on. So the light in their room was simply spilling into the room from the hall. And stopped at the first door to check in on, on the older two. And they were asleep. My kids are asleep, just uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't glamorous. Uh in particular the one, he would kind of weirdest things as been, kinda spin around like a helicopter blade. So I don't even remember necessarily what configuration they were in at the time. All I remember was that I couldn't stop looking. Just Seeing these two boys there, and it's not that they were particularly handsome. Uh, It's not that they were just you know wonderful, and they weren't you know kneeling in prayer with their Bibles in front of them. They were probably drooling and whatever and all that mess. But what I knew was that they were mine, and that God had blessed me with them. And they weren't doing like I said; they were just inert. They were just laying there, and yet the minutes passed. And I couldn't tear myself away. The bed was right there. It was the next room, and I couldn't tear myself away until eventually I did. I remember thinking, "Well, if they wake up and see me in the hall, that is going to freak them out." Ah, you know, what is that? You know, in the light, some stalker. You know, someone broke in. So I remember I did. I did move on. But you know, even though my door was the next one. If I went a little past that, there was the other two. And I did. And went a little past. And did the same thing over again. Why? Because they're perfect children? No, y'all have been known them long enough now, you know they're not. But they were my children. And I so loved them. God gives us permission to learn from those times. Because as moving as they can be for us personally, they are the thinnest, faintest shadow of the love of your father who also cannot turn himself away. When he says, I will never leave you or abandon you, it's not because he can't and because he just somehow is obligated to stay. It's because He's the Father who just can't bear to turn Himself away. You know, when we come to understand this, even in slight increases, it does transform everything. It transforms everything. Time would fail us, and I will not do that here. What I hope to spur in you is for you to leave here and think about those things. How does recognizing that unconditional love that God has for me How does it transform everything? Let me start uh, the process just a bit. Understanding how much God loves you transforms your own love for God. In fact, it's, it's virtually a requirement to work on one for the other. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, and it's a simple verse, it's a short verse, but there's a lot of meaning packed into it. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19. We read here, First John 4, verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. And there's a reason the holy days start with Passover. Without Passover, the rest of the holy days are pointless. It's not that they can be thrown away. They all mean something, but everything about them means something. And their order means something. And where does everything start? Not with us repenting. It starts with what he chose to do for us. The because there is important. We love him because he first loved us. I can't fathom a single person here, at least of all the people that I know, that would say, you know, I love God enough. I, I love Him so much, I could probably tone it down a little bit, you know, loving God and focusing on Him and wanting to submit to His will, because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of max love, you know, just max love guy. I don't know anyone here who would think that. How many here do not want to grow, don't raise your hand, uh, do not want to grow in their love for God? then actually comprehending all the more His love for you is a key to that. Because it says we love Him because He first loved us. It transforms other things. It transforms how we understand our trials. Understanding in whatever way you can grow in understanding God's love for you transforms how we understand our trials and how we experience them. I'm going to save some time by not going into that in detail because I know Dr. Scott Winnell covered that recently in this congregation. I heard about it and said, well, it was a sermon I was going to give talking about, I actually had a whole plan. I had the same lyrics and everything. It's just some thing God realized, okay, Smith's going to ruin it. I'm going to have Dr. Scott Winnell do it because I don't want, I don't want Smith giving that one. Uh, and I heard so many positive things about that. When you comprehend how much God loves you, it does transform your trials. To know that it's not just something He's allowing you to go through. It's something He's going through with you. I remember an uh, example from my one of my sons. I won't say which one. The name rhymes with Shmonathan. But anyway, it was, uh, it was my oldest son. I'll say it. And he was still really little. Really wasn't verbal yet. He was just a toddler. In fact, uh, it was before uh, the second boy had been born. So we were still living on the. Uh, I, mean, I, I can't recall. We were still in the first uh, upper level apartment. Uh, it was it was the second floor. And right outside of our door were steps. And it always made me nervous about you know the the kid really at that point uh, going down the steps. And really, you're a little munchkin. And these were hard steps. I mean, they you know, it it could be rough, right? And I remember once we had to go and the door was open and Jonathan was right there at the door. I saw him right there before I was there, there in his little diaper and his little tiny, you know, tiny shirt. Sorry, Jonathan, talking about them. But anyway, there he was standing there with the steps. And, you know, that's a real trial for a child, you know, to have to go down the steps. They can be scary. They can be intimidating. But what got me As he was standing at the open doorway, just a little toddler that he was, with his hand up, ready for me to take it and take him down. It wasn't that he expected me to make the stairs disappear. Oh, you know, once the dad's here, I'll make these stairs disappear and won't have this trial anymore. But he knew he wouldn't be going down them alone. When you comprehend, even in small increments, more and more God's love for you, it does transform everything. Consider how it transforms our understanding of God's law. People ridicule us for thinking that somehow God actually wants us to obey His law. Would they ridicule a parent for wanting their children to obey their commands And their instructions. You know, actually, even though it's in Psalm 19, verse 7, please write that. I actually kind of like it in what we sing in the hymn, uh, in hymn 14. So I'm going to say something, but I like reading it from the hymn. though that we have uh, hymn 14. It's the, uh, I think it's hymn 14. It's the heavens God's glory do declare. And in the arrangement there, the line that we sing together is the law of God is a perfect law, for it converts the soul. Is God asking us to keep his law, commanding us to keep his law just because he likes watching a bunch of people have to do things maybe they don't want? Or to not do things they really want to do? Or is it because he is working in us to craft himself? And he loves us too much not to tell us to do those things. These things that he crafts for our good and not for his You know, God, and understanding that he loves us, transforms our relationship with each other. When you understand in any degree how much God loves you, you long to have that kind of love in you as well towards other people. And more than that, when you see your brother across the room who may be irritating to you, uh, who may be offensive to you, uh, who for some reason... Won't grab a breath, man. What's wrong, you know, with this guy? Uh, whatever it is, when you recognize how much God truly loves you, then you open your mind to recognize how much God truly loves him. How can we hold a grudge against our brother? We recognize how much he means to God. How can we hold some record of wrongdoing against our sister When we can comprehend even the smallest amount of that incomprehensible love that God has for her. And again, just hoping to get you started, I'll just cover one more thing. When we come to understand God's love for us, in any degree at all, it transforms our understanding of forgiveness. You know, uh, there's a sermon, and I couldn't find a record of it. And I think it was from the global days. It was sometime back, uh, and Dr. Meredith gave it, that we are the church of the forgiven. And I remember where I was and where I was sitting when I saw that video. And it changed something in me. It flipped a few switches that, that, that weren't in place. You know, there's actually a song uh, since uh, the... Uh, The other song got used up in the other sermon. There's another one that actually uh, Phil West. Some of you know Mr. Phil West, uh, a minister up north. Uh, He sang with some others at the feast. Uh, It was a, a song titled You Are I Am. And there's this line in it, for instance, that says, I've been the one held down in chains beneath the weight of all my shame. I've been the one to believe that where I am, you cannot reach. And I really related to that because there's times when I know I can feel that way. There's times when you're examining yourself and you see something in yourself. Maybe it's something new or maybe it's something you've struggled with for some time. And you question, how can God forgive that? How am I going to get past that? And God gives us something to help us understand that. It's the last passage. We'll turn to return to Luke 15. Luke 15. And we have the parable of the prodigal son. And I won't read the entire parable. Many of us are familiar with it. If you are not familiar with it, you should read it. But essentially there was a wealthy man who had sons. One of them decided, you know, I don't want to wait until you're dead, old man, to have my inheritance. I want my part now. And the father gives him his part. And he goes out and lives this Terrible life he, he was able to buy a lot of friends through all the stuff he's doing He's a wealthy guy But when the money runs out The friends run out And he finds himself Essentially sitting in a pig pen Just craving after the garbage They're able to eat Because he is so hungry And so starved And we jump in the middle of that In Luke 15 and verse 6 Sorry, 16 Luke 15 and verse 16 we read him talking to himself. or It speaks of him here in verse 16. It says, And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? You know, the Bible actually says in Romans 2.4, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. He remembered what was available with his father that he didn't have away from him. So, kind of a no-brainer at this point. He says in verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He crafts this speech he's going to tell to his dad, to his father, in the hopes that his father will forgive him. says in verse 20, He arose and came to his father, But notice what it doesn't say. What you're not going to read is that when the son finally came, the father looked at him in a stern fashion and allowed him to go on and on about how unworthy he was. And then finally, with kind of a grimace on his face, sort of nodded to a door uh, to let him go and think about his crimes some more. He did know he had done wrong. He was coming back. But he didn't even make it to the house. Before the father acted. It said again, verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Just the sight that his son was coming back was enough to move the father to run to him. And to fall on him in compassion and to hold him and kiss his neck. So grateful. A son that had been dead was alive again. It says in verse 21. That's before the son has even gotten out his speech. Before he'd even started these prepared words. And it says in verse 21. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And before it can even go to the rest, before he can finish the speech, what does the father react? It says, verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and and put it on him and put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The joy the father had, and I remember reading that with a perspective. I mean, often these verses we read lots of times, right? And then something happens and makes us think differently. And I know in the house that we left in Missouri, uh, I, we all have our places to pray. I'm still kind of figuring out in the new house. If Sometimes I got, I, I like, kind of like the office at work because I can lock the door and close the shade and, you know, and I can, and I can pray there. But at least in the house in Missouri, I had my place. Uh, in my office, towards the very end of my office was our brown fold-out couch. Uh, that we use for guests or ourselves Even sometimes we had a lot of people in the house And it was in my office And I could go there and it's far away from everybody And that was my kneeling place there by the brown couch And I could, I could cry out loud if I needed to And it was good And it was, it, was, it was there, it was my space And there's times when we feel That we've messed up so much And like David talks about our sin Weighing on us And I've been there you've been there if you've reflected on it and there's times i've stood in that room and that brown couch looked like it could have been in the next state it looked so far away and so difficult to reach and i had to remember not that god just that god longed for me to be there And not just that he was there at the couch waiting for me to arrive. But like the prodigal son, even at a distance, he had fallen on my neck and had kissed me and was bringing me to the couch to restore that relationship. When we... Strive to grasp the love God holds for us. Understand from the beginning, we'll fail. It is too big. It is too great. It is too deep. And it is too broad. But we grow in the striving. And in that striving, we give Him freedom to build in us his own character, his own mind, and his own love. So that a coming day after the return of Jesus Christ, we can be to others what he has been to us. That example of perfect and beautiful love.